gracious word to us this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is one of the most important topics we could ever talk about, and it's one of the most important passages we could ever read. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace. In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For... We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You may be seated. The first domino of the Protestant Reformation fell on October 31st, 1517, whenever Martin Luther, a German monk, nailed 95 statements to a door of a church in Wittenberg. Those statements were all up there to challenge the indulgence industry of the, Protestant, or the Roman Catholic Church. The first statement of the first domino, the first arguments that Martin Luther was making, of the 95 arguments he was making, was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That is the first statement of the Protestant Reformation. When Jesus said repent, He was telling us that what it means to be a believer is to live a life, an entire life, that is defined by repentance. By turning away from self and everything about self, all trust in self, everything that you, outside of Christ, thought of when you thought of coming to the Lord, every way that you would have imagined that He wanted you to worship Him, everything that you would do and and count on that 
that would bring you into His favor, repent of all of it. Every thought that belongs to someone who is proud with the rest of his life has to be repented of. It's an entire turning away. So that it makes sense that buying these indulgences, which were these official Catholic certificates that you can purchase with money to free you from your punishment in purgatory. That whole idea of, of a person having money to buy God's forgiveness, it makes no sense if you understand the word repentance. Christ's call to repent is comprehensive. This is the point that I'm going to spend our time kind of unpacking. We are completely unable. We do not have, could not have, the currency to acquire saving blessing from the Lord. If we had that currency, we would not use it to get God's pleasure. This is the point. Grace is God's saving response to favored sinners. Grace is not God's saving help or help to be saved. Or, or I mean, we're, we're not talking about this. The sermon is not grace in addition to anything. This is grace alone. God's grace alone is His response that ends up saving. Favored sinners. And Luther believed that the most important commitment of his ministry was this point. That sinners are saved by grace alone. In order to unpack this idea of grace, I want us to do two things that I think Ephesians 2 is calling us to. And that's despair of yourself. First part of this sermon, full disclosure... I'm going to call you to despair of yourself. And then the second part is to depend upon Christ. Point number one, despair of self. One of Martin Luther's most famous debates was with this scholar whose name was Erasmus. Erasmus had written this book called Free Will. You're, you're familiar with the concept of free will? In this book, Erasmus made the argument that we humans are free to will, to choose God. He made the argument that sin has not so rendered us crippled, or maybe it's rendered us crippled, but God's grace overcomes our crippling so that then we cooperate with God to do good. His grace comes in addition to and in the help of our faint but good desires. And Luther responded to him that if you think of free will like that, if you think of humanity like that as being free to choose God, then that just proves how sin has deceived you. Martin Luther was a pretty colorful character. I mean, he said these things really strongly. That is just proving that you belong to the devil 
if you believe you have that kind of freedom. Beloved, we want to listen not to Luther, but to God. And what I think we'll see in Ephesians chapter 2 is this key to understanding the phrase that we see in verse 5, the phrase that is then repeated in verse 8, that we are saved by grace. The key to understanding what this means to be saved by grace is to comprehend the difference between verses 1 through 3 and verse 10. Go to verse 10. And do you see a certain kind of walk in verse 10 and a certain kind of works in verse 10? Verse 10 says that there are these people who can walk or live in a way that is filled with good works. The only way we'll understand being saved by grace alone is, is if we look at the walk and the works of verse 10 and understand just how far we've come from verses 1 through 3. You see these words, walk and works, in verses 1 through 3 as well. And it's completely different. You, Paul says, describing saved people, were dead. We all, he says, in verse 3, we all, apostles, all Christians, all people, walked a certain way and worked a certain way. And it's completely different than verse 10. Verses 2 and 3 explain this death that Paul mentions in verse 1. It's a spiritual death. Obviously, it's not a complete death in every sense of the word because it's a walking kind of death. It's a walking in sin. It's a, he, he describes it's a kind of death that you are worldly. And if you know what the Bible says about the world, it pits the world against God completely. It's, it, it says that you, even you Christians, you, before you were saved, lived completely opposed to God and His ways. You were dead. But don't misunderstand what I mean when I say dead. He says it's a, it's a death that walks. It's a death that follows. You see that? It's a death that follows, not Jesus. Follows Satan. It's a death that works, not the works of verse 10. It's a death that works the works of disobeying God that lives for sinful passion. So there is a will, isn't there? There are desires. There's a free agency that we read about. We want certain things. We do certain things. But all of it is totally opposed to God's will. He says, I want you to be like this. And we do the opposite of that. You need to understand that verses 1 through 3 are speaking about everyone. You see that at the end of verse 3? You, even you Christians, were like all of mankind. By nature. Which means by birth. From your birth. From your birth. Until grace. From your birth. Saving grace. Before that, there is not an interval. There's not a moment. There's not any interruption. To your total rebellion and enmity against God. So Luther says to Erasmus, 
what I would say to you. What do you mean that people, before they are saved, are free? There's a saying, dead men tell no tales. Dead men tell no tales. Well, neither do they do any good, God says. Dead people have dead works. Dead people can only have one brand of faith that's a dead faith. And just to make this really plain, you know corpses cannot uncorpse themselves. Verses 1 through 3 is painting the universal. All of mankind, we all were like this. You Christians are the only ones who are not like this, but you were. It's saying that self, what is in us, is so inclined towards sin that everything in us can only sin. I'm trying to make you despair of yourself. That's what I'm trying to do. And I think I'm preaching the truth. Verses 1 through 3 says, We were world loving, professional slaves to evil. Verses 1 through 3 is telling us that we could not, in that condition, call our own sin evil. We may be offended by all, all other people's sin. We could not actually forsake our sin because it was the most precious thing to us. We would not forsake that for what we hate which is God, free. Our souls, our wills were free to sin. Free to sin. And to sin greatly. And to sin creatively. That's how we were free. I'll belabor the point just a bit. Every thought. Every desire. Every action carried you and me from God toward hell. I belabor this point because until you and I own the walk and the works of verses 1 through 3 as our testimony, if not now, before, for sure, if we do not own verses 1 through 3, we have not grasped the salvation of verses 4 through 9. Verses 1 through 3 make us ask the question, how can followers of Satan start to follow the enemy? It's not the problem. It's not that you can start following Jesus because you figured out this isn't working. Godliness must be better. I'm going to try Jesus out. Just try him out. Not that way. You can't start following Jesus by feeling some sort of conviction and then saying, I'm going to make up for it. I've done a lot of things in my past. I'm trying to just make up for it now. Pasta. That's the new term I've given myself. Pasta. Pasta. Why are you so down on us? Because I want you to have Christ. 
The condition that you must meet in order to be saved is despair. It's despair. You do not depend on Christ until you despair of yourself. Many people miss the first five words in verse 10. When we think about how did we get from the walking and working of verse 1 through 3 to verse 10, walking and working, many people don't really take in those first five works, words. You were, verses 1 through 3, but you and me, Jew and Gentile who are Christians, are His work. He has done something. He has worked us over from verses 1 through 3. He has to do it. Or else we will not then walk in new works. Grace is God's saving response to favored sinners. We have to despair of self or we will never depend on the Savior. If we do not despair of ourselves... When it comes to salvation, we will not depend on anyone but ourselves. And what God is doing in calling us to despair of ourselves is not to leave us in despair, but is to call us to depend upon the Savior that He's provided in Christ. There was an author who spoke these words that I think uh, we could, if we're honest, speak as well. He said, Whenever a friend of mine succeeds, I die. A little. There's something in our hearts. Whenever we see someone else get something we want, we die. And then by extension, other people's failure, what does that do? It just gives us a little shot in the arm. I'm so glad they failed. I feel better about myself. There's something in us as sinners that feels that way and responds that way when we see people fail. And the glorious news of the Gospel is that God is not like us. When He sees verses 1 through 3 kind of complete failure, He does something very different. What I have been praying that the Lord would help us to see is that we would see these, even these first words of verse 4, but God, in this fresh way. I can't do it as a preacher. I, I need the Lord's grace. If you're going to take this in, how do we get from verses 1 through 3 to verse 10? It starts in verse 4. But God, but, but means that everything he's just said in verses 1 through 3, he's about to say the opposite of what you're expecting. But introduces this contrast. Verses 4 through 10 is going to be the opposite of what you would expect would happen to those of verses 1 through 3. It's the opposite of what the people of verses 1 through 3 could do or would do. But God, God, to explain that opposite reality that we're now entering into in verse 4 to really this is like an alternate dimension this is sci-fi kind of stuff from Paul to explain this Paul needs a new subject God is the subject of verses 
4 through 10. There was a subject. There was an actor in verses 1 through 3. And that actor, if you look back, that, that is we. That is you. That is all of humanity. You want to know what your potential is outside of the grace of God. Look at verses 1 through 3. That's all of your potential. That is what you do in your salvation. Then verses 4 through 10, we have got a different subject. We've got a different actor. It is God. And and what we hear in verses 4 through 10 is what believers receive from what God has done. Completely despite all that they've done. Grace is a response. You see that? You just see that. God sees verses 1 through 3. He sees it all better than anyone could. And He responds. His response is grace. That's amazing. Grace, you have to know, is a response of God to our sin. And you also have to know this, that grace is rooted in our Savior. It's a response to our sin and it is rooted in our Savior. Now, let me give you kind of a project. Next time you're in a department store... You walk by uh, the, the polo counter, go up to that salesperson and say, uh, oh, she's, she'll probably say, uh, you know, do you want to try our latest fragrance? And you say, uh-uh, I'm here for the duffel. And then she'll act like you're crazy. You're just here for the duffel. You, don't you understand how language works? To get that duffel, it's a free gift, which means you have to hand me $75 and buy one of my products. She'll look at you like you don't know how to use language plainly. And in fact, what you should say to her is that ain't free. And if it ain't free, it ain't a gift. You've got to treat the gift of God in salvation and the grace of God in salvation differently than you use the word gift everywhere else in your life. There are occasions for gifts. Someone's birthday, get them a gift. They've gone above and beyond on some project you asked them to do. You get them a gift. That ain't no gift. Grace is free. And it's, it's, it's not just free in the sense that it's unmerited, like you didn't deserve it. I, I, free has a fuller meaning than that when we're talking about the grace of God in salvation. The freedom with which God saves sinners is so shocking because it's not just unmerited, it is demerited. It is demerited. You have only filled your life with demerits to be punished. This gift cannot be occasioned by anything favorable. A person I love who has this holiday. A person who I appreciate because they did this thing for me. It can't be occasioned or conditioned upon anything favorable in us. The favor that God is showing to sinners is so shocking because it's rooted in nothing in us. Not that I'm going to give grace to people because I'm a good future teller. And those are the people who would choose me. It's not that. He knows what those people of verses 1 through 3 would have done. Notice how 
in verses 4 through 9, that the favor God shows to sinners is explained not by anything in them, but in everything in him. It is his character. That's why Paul says, verse 5, when we were dead. I don't want you to misunderstand that there was anything in you. It was when you were dead in your sin that God activated his character, his mercy, because of his great love. Grace is this kind of being, this merciful and loving and gracious being. How he responds to our sin. But grace is also rooted in our Savior. You can't miss this either. The only solution to the dead is resurrection. Otherwise, it's not enough. Not grace in addition to, not crippled, dead. And the only way those dead people can live is resurrection. So what does it say God does? Verses 5 and 6. He made us alive. Not apart from Christ. Verse 6. Made us together with Christ. Excuse me, verse 5. Made us together with Christ. Verse 6. Raised us up with Christ. Seated us with Christ. Verse 7. Why? To show off His riches of grace toward us in Christ. What this is communicating is when you think of God being gracious, you better be thinking of Jesus. There is no other basis for it. We cannot have grace from God without Christ if it only comes with Christ. We cannot have the grace of God outside of Christ if, if He just keeps on saying, in Christ you have this. The riches of His grace and kindness in Christ. Perhaps the most amazing point about the freeness of salvation is His freedom. When we talk about freeness and salvation, we should be thinking about the freeness of God. So much of this conversation, it turns into kind of protesting, right? It turns into this kind of arguing. It turns into objections. But wait, what about this? And, and, and the Bible, I mean, Paul, when he, when he hears objections, when he hears protesting about this way of God, he says, who are you? Oh, man, you're doing the wrong thing whenever you start objecting to this. It's all designed to make you worship. So I just want you to sit back and worship. To encourage your worship, I want you to think about the freeness of God. I want you to erase from your heart every suggestion that rises up that God had to do this. Well, what about the person on the island? Doesn't he have to give it to him? That he had to give you an opportunity? He did not have to give this to you. He's free to do it. Or not to do it. You've got to race from your notion, if you're going to understand what it means to be saved by grace alone, that God owes sinners a way to live. The triune God was under no obligation to save anyone He freely chose. 
because of who He is. Is your heart ever tempted the way that my heart is tempted because of circumstances in my life, how things are going, fears that God doesn't care, that God is stingy. He saw what you did, verses 1 through 3, and he does the opposite of what we expect. And we expect it because he said it. At the end of verse 3, what we should expect is what he said we deserved. We deserved his wrath, his personal anger against us, individuals pouring it out forever and ever. You should expect that. And then we get to verses 4 through 10. He freely chose to do it. God the Father freely chose to save through Christ. He freely chose Christ to be the Savior. The grace of God, we're told, appeared when Jesus appeared. In other words, the the, the world was empty of grace, in a sense, when it's empty of the Savior. John 1, verse 14, the Word of God The Son of God became flesh, took on humanity. And when He was born at Christmas, He started dwelling among us, and it says, full of grace. The world would be empty of grace apart from the incarnation of the Son of God. Every good gift that an unbeliever gets is based upon the Savior. That's the only way that grace can go to anyone. If grace, then, is God's response to our sin, then God's grace to us, beloved, is Jesus. It is Jesus. What is grace? Jesus is grace. He's the carrier of grace. He's the accomplisher of grace. And he was free to say no. But he didn't say no. He wouldn't ever say no to his Father's plan. God the Son freely chose incarnation. And he freely chose crucifixion. What is free for us cost God greatly. So that the prediction of what this Savior would do was given to us in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. And you keep seeing what he's going to do and it costs him everything. And it costs us nothing. He bore our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. We owed it. He paid it. Carl Truman said that sin is our violent, lethal rebellion against God. And biblical grace is God's violent, raw, and bloody response. That's what grace is. It led Luther to what's called the theology of the cross. That God does the unexpected to accomplish the impossible. It was not possible for you to do good works. It was not possible for you to love God. It was not possible for you to do anything other than follow the one all the way to hell. Who God is against. You were with him and I was with him. And to do the impossible for us. Verse 10 is impossible. To do that, he finds a way to do 
what seemed impossible for him. To do the impossible for us, God found a way to do what seemed to be impossible for us. The one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. The one who is totally righteous, who has one share in wrath, and that's as the one who is pouring out wrath, he becomes the object, the one who receives wrath. You need a judgment tree. You need a cross because God needs to kill you for your sin. Need, the word need means something. You need the resurrection because you need to be raised from the dead in order to believe and be saved. And you didn't. God has not called you to die on a cross. He will not require you to bear His wrath. God's response to you, Christian, after you destroyed all His demands, was to give you all He requires. And if you are someone who is not devoted to the Lord Jesus, that can be your testimony. You owe Him holiness. And if you're outside of Christ, you are dead in your sins. But if you will trust in Christ, if you will repent of your sin and devote your life to Christ, it will be because He has saved you. Will you trust Him? Will you despair of yourself and depend upon the Lord Jesus? I don't think there's a Christian out there who would say things like, we don't need grace. I mean, there are things that are just plainly in the Scriptures. We have to, we, we have, to have grace. We can't just deny what it says. And yet there are probably many of us on some level, all of us, need a personal reformation to happen when we think about salvation. And the first, let me give you four. The first one is that grace is not cheap. Grace was never God overlooking sin Grace is not about, I know you're a sinner, but God is gracious. It was never not taking your sin seriously. We treat grace like it is cheap whenever we just expect it. Or we're not thinking about our sin when we're wanting it. Or we're not thinking about it in connection to our Savior. He's the only reason I can get it. Grace is God the Son taking on flesh so that now God can do what seemed impossible. He can die in our place so that forgiveness could be bought and dead sinners can be raised. The second personal reformation perhaps all of us need when it comes to grace is that grace does not merely offer salvation. It guarantees it. There is a connection between despairing of yourself and depending upon the Savior. It's not one without the other. If you've got both, you don't just have an offer of being saved. Look in verse 6, how it says where believers are. 
You're not here if you're in Christ. You're in heaven already. That's why we read earlier that that those God chooses to save are not just justified. They are also sanctified and they are glorified. We are already there because that is the only destination we have. He gives at the end of chapter 1 us the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we have it in our hands. Number three. Grace does not respond to our faith. Grace does not respond to our faith. Grace creates the faith that was not there. Just think about the logic of what he's saying in verses 8 and 9. What does it mean to be a lost person? It's a person who is totally ignoring God. Someone who does not give God, the the credit and the the affection and the the worship that he deserves. Verses 8 through 9 then describe a way that God saves that makes perfect sense if what it means to be saved is to now give him all the credit that he is due. It is the kind of way to be saved that no one is going to boast as if you don't need God alone. Grace does not respond to our faith. Okay, then I'll save them. Grace creates what was not there. We are stealing the attention that God deserves. We're stealing the trust that God deserves if we think we chose Him without His grace. Let me give a quick illustration. Faith is the pipe. Grace is Tony Wells. Okay, this is what I'm going to do. And Tony probably hates me doing this. Grace, or faith is the pipe. Grace is Tony Wells. The pipe is what is the instrument of salvation in, in this case. It's the instrument that, um, that carries that the, that the, uh, the, the life-giving oil, I'm, I, this, is, this is failing already, uh, the life-giving oil is flowing through the pipe, right? Salvation is flowing through the instrument of faith. But that pipe did not create itself. Tony made the pipe. Grace is the source of the instrument. You have to have the gift of God to even believe. God raises us from the dead to live. But then once we live, beloved, we really do choose. We really do live. We really do believe. We really do repent. Because He's good at His job. Fourth, grace is not weak. Grace is God, verse 10, working over us so that we have good works. John Bunyan said at the day of doom, the day of judgment, men will be judged according to their fruits, according to their works. It will not be said to anyone on the day of judgment, do you believe or did you believe? What will be asked will, is, what have you done? Were you doers or were you merely talk, talkers? Anyone who has a profession of faith without the proof of faith has not received grace yet. Because grace does, verse 10, they now walk in a new way. 
it may mean then that we need to speak differently about salvation. We need to forsake the self-confidence that is underneath the phrase, you need to accept Jesus. The King of heaven and earth, you have to accept Him. He's just powerless waiting. Or I made Him the Lord of my life. I made Him the Lord of my life. Do we understand grace at all? And here's where this comes to a great payoff. Do you want assurance? Do you want to know you're saved? Do you want to know that you know? The question is, where does your heart look for that assurance? Where are you looking? What is the evidence you're putting up to encourage yourself? Here's the point. Our hearts always look to the source of salvation to find security in salvation. This is what you will do. And this is why we need to hear this today. In order to find security in salvation, our hearts always look to the source of salvation. We are saved by grace through not how we're doing obeying God. We're saved by grace through not attending the Vatican to view the relics and and get some time lopped off our time in purgatory. We're saved by grace through not perfect attendance at Grand Bible Church or any other church. Don't find your security in the place that is meant to make you despair. You look at your works. That is not the place of security. When Martin Luther was getting to the point where he could not believe any longer what he had been preaching and been told. He felt it most keenly whenever he was serving the Lord's Supper. Because in in Roman Catholic theology, when the priest stood before the people and set a blessing on, on the bread and the cup, by the priest's blessing, the bread became the body of Christ and the the, the cup became the blood of Christ. And he was like, I'm so sinful. I'm handling God now. I'm, I'm touching God. How can I survive? The reason that grace is Martin Luther's most impactful topic is because what follows the word by, we are saved by, that says, says everything about your assurance. The source of your salvation necessarily also is the source of your security. Now, there are means of grace. This is what the Reformers talked about with the the means of grace. Ways that God gives us grace. I'll just mention two. Preaching and praying. You need to hear preaching because we are saved when we hear the message of salvation. Praying is a means of grace. This is why the Hebrew says, go to the throne of grace to receive grace. And you're doing that by praying. You're receiving grace from God in your praying. The trouble is when you treat the means of grace like the means of salvation. Listen to me. I'm being very careful. 
Preaching and praying is not that important. But your life depends on it. Here's what I mean. Preaching is the means that God uses to save. God is using the gospel to save you. That's why you better hear preaching. But don't believe that because I went to preaching, because I pray, because I do anything, that that is the means of my salvation. No, those are means of grace. It is the way that God saves. Unless you believe that sin has stolen your strength to love God, you will never trust Him. Dependence is the posture of assurance. And hearing the gospel over and over is what is going to make you despair of yourself and depend upon the Savior. God, grace is God's saving response to favored sinners. And that is so good because if salvation is all of grace, then we can have assurance. I'm not looking at anything in me. I'm looking at the Savior. He will save me. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us grace to believe. Use this preaching to give us the strength to believe. May this be a means of how you save us by your grace. Cause everyone here not to trust in anything in their own performance, even their, their fruit or good works as, as, as their primary confidence for being saved. What we need to rely upon totally is your Savior. So we pray that you would elevate in our mind his performance and make us throw the whole weight of our eternity upon him. And we ask this in His name. Amen.